Well, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and get started and folks will make their way in because we have two books to cover today. So we got a lot to go, go on here. So don't want to waste too much time. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for your word. Uh, we're grateful for the opportunity to just through this class be able to step back and walk through uh, the Old Testament and just consider uh, just the story of redemption that's, that's playing out before us. And Father, I pray as we, as we continue to, to look at Joshua and Judges this morning, God, that you would just give us eyes to see, uh, God, your glory in these books and give us eyes to, that, that appreciate and are thankful for what we have in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, uh, if you were with us last week, or if you caught, caught it online, listened to it online, you know, we walked through the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, hopefully you got the impression that Deuteronomy is a pretty important book as we're moving forward. Uh, can anyone remember, just sort of give a brief summary of why that book is significant? What, what did we see there in Deuteronomy? What is, what is God preparing to do, and, and how is He preparing the people for that? Yeah. Any, one thing in particular. One very important thing. I'll let someone else go. Oh, okay. Preparing to leave them. Yep. Into the promised land. And, and as we've been sort of tracing that, what have, what's the significance of that? They're not just entering a land, right? They're, they're receiving something. What is that? No. No. But I like the answer. For sure, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, they're, they're receiving a kingdom, right? God is building a kingdom. So the land's not just a land. They're not just receiving uh, houses and homes and things like that, but they're receiving an actual kingdom. And, and because of that, God is, has been laboring to outline what, it, what it's going to look like for them to be a people who live in His kingdom under His rule, right? So we've been defining kingdom with that, using that helpful way that uh, Graham Goldsworthy defines it as God's people in God's place, in God's presence, under God's rule, right? So that's the kingdom, concept of the kingdom that we're going to see throughout the Bible. And that's about to happen. The people are, um, historically speaking, you know, our context is very much the same as where we were at last week. The people are in the plains of Moab, and they're about to cross over into Canaan and take possession of it. And of course, we saw last week, he's, doesn't gonna, he's not going to give them battle plans for taking over the cities, but this covenant or these laws, this, this blueprint for the kingdom. Right. He's going to reiterate the Ten Commandments to them. He's going to show them ultimately what it looks like for them to love him, to obey him, to be his people. And we saw how that worked out and uh, just all of the ways that that was worked out in their lives and all the commands that he gave them. And so as long as there would be his people, they would remain loyal to him and love him and obey him. He promised that he would be with them and that it would go well with them in the land. So we saw that repeatedly over and over again there in Deuteronomy. And so we also saw these preparations being made for, uh, for their entrance into the land as Moses handed over leadership to Joshua and Moses eventually passes there just outside the land. And so with these promises and, command, er, and commands in hand and this new leader appointed, uh, as we come to Joshua and Judges this morning, we're ready to cross over, right? We're ready, ready for the people to enter into the land and to take the land. 
So from a, from a historical spec perspective, they are on the threshold of Canaan. They're getting ready to enter into this land. But as we've been talking about this whole time, God is doing something. He's building this kingdom. You know, he's building that kingdom that, that Adam and his wife were commanded to build but failed to do. He's building this kingdom that Noah and his descendants would also fail to build. And God has raised up this people and he's delivered them. He's given them a new identity and he's given them his powerful presence all for the purposes of bringing them into this kingdom that he alone is going to build for his purposes and by his power. And so we saw how he's doing that with this new generation, with that blueprint, and using Joshua as this leader to do that. And so as we come to this text, we're going to, we're going to see those themes continue to play themselves out. And, and these, this idea of the, the centrality of the law is sort of the thing that leads them forward, right? It's not a strategy for battle that's leading them forward. It's not a strategy for battle that they're to hold on to. But it's the commands of the Lord. It's to trust. They're to trust the Lord. And that's what's, what's to carry them forward. And so from a, you know, from a big picture perspective, they're not just right. They're not just on the threshold of Canaan. They're on the threshold of, of entering the kingdom. And then from a literary perspective, as we turn to this book, we're actually kind of closing out one, one chapter, one set of books that we saw there in the Pentateuch with those first five books written by Moses. So Genesis through Deuteronomy. We, we can look at those as sort of one whole story, which Moses is, is telling the story of really Israel's backstory, how they came to be, and the, the law and the covenant that God gave to them. And so we've, we've closed that chapter, and now we're turning to a new chapter in Israel's history. Because if, the, if those first five books you know, really laid out that covenant, then, then a lot of people are going to look at these, these next five books, and I think this is accurate. A lot of scholars are going to say, there's another set of five books that we're now going to turn to that kind of serve as almost like a, a, a Deuteronomic history or a covenant history. And, and the idea is that those, those first five books that we've been working through, they're kind of the lens that we're to use as we, as we go through this history and to interpret everything that's going on. So in, in, all that, in that sense, what we're, what we're seeing and what we're looking at as we come to Joshua and Judges, they're not just random events. They're events that we're to sort of look at and hold up to the light of, of the law, hold up to the light of everything that we've considered so far. And that's really what the authors of these books do. So as we're going to go through them, you're going to see this over and over. The authors of these books, these next five books, from Joshua all the way up through Kings, they're going to hold up these events and they're going to scrutinize them. And they expect us to look at these events and say, well, wait a minute. Are the people being faithful to the law? Are they, are they loving God? Are they obeying God? Or are they failing in that? And that's going to be really the central question for us as we move on from here. You know, are the people obeying God? Are, are Israel and her leaders loving God and remaining faithful to Him and thus keeping the kingdom that God has given them? So that, that's a big question. And I want to repeat it again because, again, as we go through this book all the way up through Kings and even beyond in some sense, this is the central question for us. Is Israel being faithful to the covenant? And are her leaders helping her do that? And thus, are they keeping the kingdom? Okay, you tracking with that? So as we, as we go through into Joshua and Judges, that's the first thing that we're to ask. As we look at these events of them entering into the land, and then what we're going to see in Judges, that's, that's really the issue for us. So given that, it shouldn't be surprising that when we take these books and we, and we ask, you know, what are the, what are the main themes that we're, we're going to see in these books? In a lot of ways, the, the main themes of these books really just sort of frame 
around that central question of faithfulness, right? There's going to be two, you know, contrasting themes in these two books that, that highlight that idea of faithfulness. In Joshua, where we're going to see a picture of faithfulness, and then in Judges, we're going to see a picture of unfaithfulness. And so as we're asking that question, right away, these two books are kind of giving us answers to that question. Well, on the one hand, yes, we're going to see, we're going to see a time and a generation that crosses into the land, and we're going to see a book that largely paints a picture of what faithfulness to the covenant looks like. And yet, as, as we turn to Judges, things are going to quickly go the opposite direction, and we're going to quickly see a picture of unfaithfulness. But there's also, I think, within this, uh, this strand of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, there's some unifying themes in these two books that we're going to see as well. And of course, one of those themes is God's faithfulness. We've been considering this the whole time that we've been walking through Joshua, or the, the, the first five books of the Pentateuch. We've looked at how God has continued to be faithful despite their unfaithfulness, despite the people's unfaithfulness. And so the same thing is going to be true in these books. We're going to see Israel fail to be faithful at times, or be faithful at times, and yet regardless of where Israel is at, God's always going to prove himself to be faithful. So God's faithfulness is going to be a consistent thing that we see put on display regardless of what's happening. But then along with that, it's also important to note that there's a theme of of leadership that really underlies and kind of serves as the backbone, not just for these two books, but the rest of those five books as well. Because when we ask that question of is Israel being faithful to the covenant, ultimately what, what these next sort of Deuteronomic history books are going to show us is that we can't ask that question without first looking to Israel's leaders. Because as the leader goes, so goes Israel. So that's going to be a a clear pattern that's going to be laid out in these first two books. And then it's going to be carried on as we go through it on into Kings. So let's, let's dive into Joshua with that in mind. Now, there's a lot of stuff that, that we're not going to get to cover. Obviously, just covering both of these two books, there's a lot of stuff we're going to miss. But again, as has kind of been the point of this class, <clears throat> I'm going to just step back, kind of give a big sort of 50,000-foot overview of these books. And in that sense, we can sort of see this, this book of Joshua is really made up of kind of two major sections. You've got chapters 1 through 12, which are largely going to focus on the conquest of the land itself. And then from there, the book shifts to, from a narrative focus to more of a, a covenantal or almost even legal type structure where we're going to see really what are, are covenant land deeds for the people of Israel that are going to outline the allotment of the land. And so uh, in that way, they're going to be less a story and more kind of the, the, an additional legal document that's kind of going to go along with Deuteronomy so that we see... Not only is the covenant being fulfilled, but there's some specific uh, ways that it's being fulfilled with specific tribes and what they're, what they're apportioned. And then that section is going to be capped off with a, with a speech, final speech by Joshua. It's going to be very reminiscent of that, that, what we saw at the end of Deuteronomy, right before Moses died, where we saw these themes of covenant renewal and a speech and an exhortation to continue on in faithfulness. And so as we walk through these, these two sections, we can really think of them in those ways, like a conquest and covenant, they really kind of make up the two large portions of this book. So thinking of the conquest narrative itself, there's really two stages to this. There's the entering into the land that we're going to see in, in chapters 1 through 5, which forms its own stage, and then the actual taking of the land in chapters 6 through 12. 
And the important thing to note about chapters 1 through 5, this sort of stage of entering into the land, is we, we, you're going to see this phrase that's used over and over again, that they, they're passing over. Passing over is a, it's a repeated phrase that's being used. But more than that, it's impossible really to read these five chapters and not, and not sort of go, you know, the, the author seems to be doing something here that's, that's reminiscent of, of events that we've already seen. There's, there's all these events that we're going to encounter that are really kind of faithfully mirroring Moses' own life and the, the previous generation, the unfaithful generation. And yet all of these events, there's sort of, there's going to be a twist in these, this new retelling of these events where obviously rather than being unfaithful, the people are going to be faithful and then we're going to see those pl- events play out differently. So just like in Numbers, we have an account of spies being sent into the land. But this time, the spies not only return with a good report, but rather than seeing Israel turn away from God in fear of the Canaanites, right? We actually see a Canaanite turn away from her own people in fear of God. So it's a, it's a clear reversal of that picture that we had there in Numbers. And, and, in, and it shows that God is certainly with this generation. You know, unlike the picture that we saw before where, where the spies come back and they're just terrified and thinking there's no way we're taking this land. Now it's the opposite, right? Rahab's report, you know, it does a lot of things, but one of the clear things that it does is it shows these people are afraid. God has come before us and he has made these people afraid of us. So this is, this is a doable thing. God is doing something here. And so in the same way, we have this, this account of the spies that mirrors numbers. We also have this, this similar account in chapters 3 of 4 that's reminiscent of Exodus 14 and the crossing of the Red Sea as the Israelites are passing safely through the Jordan River. You know, it's, it's clear that it's intentionally meant to mirror that same picture. These two crossing over uh, events almost kind of bookend this time in the wilderness. There's that going out of Egypt, and now there's a coming into the land. And so these crossing over events clearly bookend that. And then on the other side, of course, the people are going to re- renew or ratify the covenant. So we've seen this happen a couple of times. We've even seen Moses commanded at the end of Deuteronomy. And here we're going to see that happen through uh, circumcision, and we're going to see them take Passover. You know, this is going to be the, the first real clear time that we've seen them take Passover as this generation. In fact, it's kind of, the, the, the implication is they, they maybe haven't done that yet, that that hasn't happened. And what's unique about this Passover for them is they're actually going to be able to use the fruit of the land that they've crossed over into. The text makes a significant point to highlight that. And in a kind of, you know, a way that really tells us that the wilderness journey is over, the author is going to say, and, it, and when that happened, nobody had to eat manna anymore. So there's a, there's a clear sense in which the wilderness time, it, it's over. Manna is done with, now the people are enjoying the fruit of the land. And it's, it's a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. But <clears throat> along with that, we're going to finally read of this story at the end of chapter 5, where Joshua encounters this commander of the Lord's army. And it's a story that's clearly meant to serve as sort of a parallel to Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. This is Joshua's version of that. You know, there's similar elements. It seems to be a theophany or or a a God appearing to Joshua. God appears to Joshua in the form of this commander of the Lord's army. Joshua bows down and he worships. The commander of the Lord's army tells him, take your sandals off. This This is holy ground. So it's it's the same kind of picture that we saw back in, 
in Exodus with Moses at the burning bush. And yet at this, in this stage, similar to that stage, you know, God's going to give this leader instructions on how he's to lead the people forward. But this time, instead of appearing as a burning bush, he's a, he's a commander with a sword. And so the, the picture that's being communicated is pretty clear. God's getting ready to do battle. So he's not just leading his people out of somewhere. He's getting ready to lead his people into somewhere. But there's something about this that's, that's even more significant, and it's the fact that this Joshua asks the commander a question. Who, whose side are you on? And the commander says, essentially, nobody's. I'm on, I'm on my side. And so the, the picture that we're meant to take away from this event is that if the Israelites, again, are going to succeed, it's, it's God who remains loyal to himself. He's not, he's not going to do this simply because uh, they're who they are and he said he's going to do it. They're going to have to be loyal to him and to his purposes because he is loyal only to himself. And, and along with that, the picture is really that, that it is the Lord who goes before them, right? They don't need a battle plan. They need to trust that the Lord is going before them and he will give them victory so long as they're loyal to him and to his purposes alone. And that's the hanging question as we move forward. You know, are they going to be faithful to God and obey him? And it's this theme that's going to be brought out really explicitly when they actually go in and start the conquest. So in chapters 6 through 12, you know, there's a number of events that we could, we could look at here, but I think this idea of really the Lord going before them and, and this question of their faithfulness, it's kind of highlighted by two stories most explicitly, and that's the two stories of, of the, their taking of the city of Jericho and then the, the story of their taking the city of Ai. So, of course, in, in Jericho, this is a, a famous battle, right? Almost everybody, probably even if you have or haven't grown up in church, you know, there's songs about it. It's one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. You know, if you're familiar with it, you'll know that, that God commanded them to take really what was a heavily fortified city that nobody could get in and out of. He commanded them to take it in a really strange way, right? So they were, they were to march around it for a week, once a day for a week straight. And then on the seventh day, they're to blow a trumpet after marching around it seven times and wait to see what happens. And, of course, they're, they're obedient to that command. It, doesn't sound like a cunning military strategy. I don't, I don't think that, that if we were to try to think, how should we take over this heavily fortified city, that any of us would go, well, what do we march, march around it once a day for seven days? You know, it just wouldn't be, wouldn't be a strategy that we could come up with. And yet they do it. They're obedient to what God has said. And we read in, in chapter 6, verse 20, that, it, that the people shouted, the trumpets were blown, and as soon as they heard the sound of the trumpet, uh, the people shouted a great shout, the wall fell, fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Right? So the point is clear here. Like, they didn't do this. You know, they, they didn't do anything here. They marched around the city and they blew a horn. But, but all of this shows, again, that it is the Lord who goes before them to do this battle. And it is the Lord who gives them success. And it's their obedience to him that's really the key issue for them. Are they going to do what he tells them to do? And if they do, as in this case, they'll be able to succeed, not because of their strength or their military success, but because the Lord is going to give them what he's promised. And this, this same idea, it's also driven further home with, uh, with the next story, the story of the sin of Achan and, and their attempts to take the city of Ai. Initially, that fails, right? So they 
they actually go up and they, there's this, the next city that they're going to attack is the city of Ai. And, and the, in the text we read, it, it's, it's actually clearly a weaker city. There's less fortifications. The people are, there's not very many people. And, and, and it's almost like, you know, you know you're going to play a, a really pathetic team. Like I know some people yesterday were like, why did we play the starters when we were playing UAP? You know, like we should have just set the starters and let them rest. It's basically what happens. Some people are like, we should just not send everybody up there. It's not a big city. Let's just sit some people out. Let's head up there and take it. It'll be easy. It'll be really easy. But to their surprise, they go up to try to take the city and they fail miserably. Now, immediately Joshua realizes something is wrong because Joshua understands, like, what have we done? What is going on? Like, God, why have you brought us here just to have us fail like this? So he petitions the Lord and finds out that, that really what's happened is not, they've not lost because of poor military strategy. They didn't lose because they were outnumbered or outmatched, but they lost because a single person failed to do what God had told them to do. See, there was a man named Achan who, when they took Jericho, he saw some, some treasure and some a nice, shiny, beautiful coat. And he said, well, you know, what's the big deal? Take one coat, take a few dollars, bury it in my tent. No one will know. And, you know, I'll have a nice uh, little treasure that, that I'll have once, once this is all said and done. But, of course, the Lord knew. And because of this one act by one person, the whole, the whole attempt to take this, this city that really should have been easy for them to take fails. But what's significant about this story isn't necessarily Achan's failure, I think. I think what's significant is, again, how this highlights the relationship between obedience and success in taking these, these cities, right? If, if It's driving home this point that God's not messing around when he's saying this. You know, even this one small little act is enough to derail the whole thing. And then more than that, I think what it, what it also shows is the significance of Joshua's leadership, his role in all of this. Because it's really Joshua who intercedes for the people. It's Joshua who, who writes this situation according to what the Lord tells him to do, which eventually leads to, to the people putting Achan to death. And so there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which everything ends up okay. They're able to actually take the city and they make a second attempt and they win. And in a, in a way that, I, that I, honestly just seems almost sort of poetic but, but surprising, God actually tells them, hey, actually this time you can take some treasure from this city. Because they're willing to be obedient to God. They're willing to do what God told them to do. And so the, the, the picture that's painted and being reinforced clearly here is this is serious. When God says... If you will love me and you will obey me, it will go well with you. He's, he's telling them the truth. And now they know this. And so as we really go throughout the rest of this, there's going to be a couple of in, more instances in which this all plays out. But by and large, the people are faithful. We read in, in the end of chapter 11, verse 23, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So the picture is clear. Joshua and Israel have been faithful to do what the Lord commanded. And the Lord's been faithful to his promises. The, the promise of land and kingdom that was made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, it's, it's been fulfilled. This is a, a significant moment in redemptive history. The kingdom has come. The, the covenant promises are being fulfilled. 
And really the bulk of the rest of this story is just tracing out that on a practical level. Uh, it, it, the rest of the story is just, you know, it's that section that you, maybe you come to when you read Joshua and you're tempted to skip over it because you're just, you're just like uh, reading a lot of up through here and over there and down to here and this to this city and, he, and this tribe gets that size and these people get that part and then there's this city and you're going, I don't know where any of this is. And maybe you just skip to the map where it just actually has all the allotments portioned out for you already. And you go, oh, okay, yeah, they're over here and these guys are over here and they're over here. And I think we're, it, it, I get it, you know, we're tempted to, to skip a section like this, but I would, I would caution against that for a few reasons. First, just think about what these allotments represented, okay? Like, just stop, stop about and think about that for a moment. You know, these, these are nine chapters that would have been absolutely precious to these tribes. You know, they would have treasured them as they looked back on them over and over again. So just to give you a sense of maybe why that would be the case, imagine I came to you tomorrow and I said, hey, I've got, um, I've got some land in like the nicest neighborhood in town. And I've got, I just built a house on it and I don't really need it. And I'd like to give it to you. Um, can you, if you want to meet me, I'll give you the address. You want to meet me there in a week, it's yours. I'll give it to you. The land, I'll give the house. It's got two acres. It's a beautiful house. It's worth a million dollars. It's yours. I just, I don't need it. And so for the whole week, you're thinking like, okay, I got the address, but like, Really? I don't know. Is this guy actually going to give me this? This seems a little bit weird. And All right. He just said, I have to show up and he'll give me the land. And so you, you, you show up a week later and sure enough, you pull up and it's a beautiful two acres, a beautiful home. And I, I'm standing there and I have the keys in one hand and a piece of paper in the other. And, and I hand them to you and I say, it's, it's all yours. And then you look down on that piece of paper and you see that it's a land deed and your name is, is written on it. And you think, wow, like, this is mine. Like, this house is really my house. And okay, like, nobody can take that from me. I mean, that's, that's what these nine chapters amount to for them. These are, are clear, you know, we see this over and over again with this word that's used repeatedly, inheritance. This is the inheritance for this tribe. And, and as we move forward, these are really important because as, as different people try to come in and, and even as division starts kind of erupting amongst the various tribes, they're always going to be able to refer back to this and say, no, no, no. Hey, you can't come settle here. This is the land that God has given us. This is our land as, as the tribe of Judah. So, you know, Dan, you guys can't come up here and start taking some, some cities here and there and doing this kind of stuff. These are, these are really important uh, allotments that are going to really have significant ramifications for them going forward. But I think these chapters are also important because as we're going to move into Judges, they're also going to, there's going to be a phrase that, that we're going to see time and again that's not so positive, that does spell some of the trouble that we'll start to see. And I think we see this first in, in chapter 1563. And this is part of the allotment to Judah. And we read, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. And over and over again, as we come to each section for each tribe, there's going to be a similar statement that's made. And so in some sense, for each of these tribes, there's going to be a, a city or, or a group of Canaanites that they're just not able to drive out. And so as we come to the end of Joshua, in some sense, the picture that's painted is, is largely faithful. They're, they're able to take the land. And there's a few holdouts, but the, the, for the most part, it's been successful. 
And in Joshua, the picture's sort of, it's, it's very optimistic. You know, they weren't able to do it, but by and large, they were successful. But as we move into Judges, we're going to see that that sort of, yeah, they were mostly successful, is going to cause huge problems for them moving forward. So again, it's, as, you, as you move through chapters like this, just keep in mind that there are significant details that just skipping those, those kinds of chapters, you're just going to miss. It's a small detail, but it's one that's going to have huge ramifications. So finally, uh, the book of Joshua is going to end, like I said, with a similar kind of section that we saw in Deuteronomy. Joshua is going to end. He's going to offer some, some last charges, covenant charges to the people to remain faithful. We're going to see a covenant renewal ceremony happening. And then finally, we'll, we'll read of his death you know, in a similar way that we read of Moses' death. And it's a significant event that's really going to set up the, the crisis that we're going to see in the next book. And there in, in verse 31, you know, the author kind of sums up everything we've read in this way. In chapter 24, verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So again, the, the author's making it clear. Israel served the Lord for as long as Joshua lived and, and even on into the lives of the elders that served with Joshua. So as long as anyone was alive who remembered these events, who was there for them, those people were faithful. So it's a, it's a picture, again, of faithfulness, right? As we step back and think about this book as a whole, despite some cases of failure, those cases really just serve to highlight the, the ability of the people to repent, to get back on track, and to be faithful with what God has commanded. And so throughout this book, that's, that's what we see example after example of a faithful God who's leading a, a faithful Savior and a faithful people to take a, a victorious kingdom, right? So before we move into Judges, any comments, any questions, any, any thoughts on the book of Joshua? Yeah. God, and then trying to correlate that with Jesus saying, forgive your, yeah. your enemies. How would you go about that conversation? And yeah, them? It's, a good, it's a great question. Probably the most natural question I think all of us reading this book would have. Um, I think there's a number of things that you, you would want to address in a question like that. I think definitely, you know, making it clear God's not different. You know, that, that's, there have been some people who have tried to kind of, well, maybe God sort of changed or... You know, but um, no, I think God is largely the same in these, in these ways. Not largely, he is. But um, I think, you know, we have to, again, understand the uniqueness of what Israel is doing. Uh, this isn't something that is repeated ever. This happens once and it, it, it doesn't happen again. This is a one-time event in which God is giving a specific place to them and uh, it's not something that I would say the Bible ever gives us any indication can or should happen again with Israel or anybody else. And, and so there's, a, there's an aspect to this that is, that is unique. And so uh, it's not to be repeated or we're not to think, you know, oh, the Holy the Crusades. Yeah, that was just the same kind of thing. No, I think that was, that's a misguided understanding of the nature of this significant event. And, and to understand the significance and the uniqueness of this event, we just have to look at everything that surrounds it. 
you know, all the, the obvious miracles that God is doing to make it abundantly clear to Israel, I'm the one telling you to do this, and I'm the one who's doing this. You're not doing this. So in some sense, yes, God is using them. But in a lot of these stories, it's not them who are, they're not the ones killing anybody. It's mostly God. And so there's a sense in which, like, well, if, if, if we saw something like that happen, which we're not, it would be pretty obvious that God was doing something like that. I mean, if you saw, anybody saw events like this happening nowadays, we would all, it would be national news headlines. You know, if, well, there's a whole army that marched through an entire sea. And, and, and it was national news headlines then. You know, we see this in, in the case of Rahab. You know, she says, we, we, or he, we've heard of what's been going on. Like, we're terrified of you. We know God is on your side because of all the things that God has done for you and the fact that he delivered Og, king of Bashan, into your hand and the fact that you're able to cross over the sea. So this is, this, everybody's kind of seeing this around and they, they're recognizing what's happening. And then I think along with that, which is also significant, yes, um, there's a sense in which God is, is telling them to devote all of these people to destruction. But it's also really clear that repentance is an option for these people. Because Rahab is a story that immediately makes that clear. Rahab's story immediately makes clear that God is not against, and, the, and, and I think in similar ways, the story of the Gibeonite, Gibeonites also makes that clear. Where though they deceive Israel, you know, Israel's going to come back and say, look, you know, why didn't you just tell us that you sort of feared us and you wanted to join us? Because now you're just going to end up being, you basically pledged to be woodcutters and servants for us for the rest of our lives. But you wouldn't have had to do that. You could have just told us that, you know, you were on our side. So there's, there's pictures throughout this, this book that show that it, it, repentance is a real option for these people. Um, and that's important because understanding the uniqueness of, you know, we're going to see all the way back in Genesis when God tells Abraham that he's going to do this someday. That he's going to bring his ancestors in and they're going to take Canaan. He's saying, ultimately going to say to Abraham, I'm not going to do that yet because the sin of the Canaanites is not yet complete. And, and what God's basically saying there is there's a kind of wickedness and judgment that God is going to bring as God upon the Canaanites that, that they deserve. And if you know anything about Canaanites and you start to study their culture, you can understand why. I mean, they were a perverse people, absolutely horrendously perverse. They would sacrifice their children by burning them alive. I mean, there's, there's no redeeming qualities about this culture. Even by our, I mean, if this is, again, a culture in our own day that if, you know, it would be the United Nations would be bringing them up for atrocities and going, we got to, somebody got to send troops in there to deal with these people. They're awful. And, and so the same is true in this case. God is just using Israel as a means to execute judgment on these people. So I think those are just some of the, some of the things that I would say. I think there's more things that you have to wrestle with and, um, you know, questions about God's character, God's right to judge. I mean, this is in some ways small potatoes compared to something like uh, the flood. You know, and I think with, with an event like that, you wonder if, a, if it's okay for God to do that, which maybe a person asking that question wouldn't see that, but why is it somehow less okay for God to judge just one nation when God was, was willing and, and had a right to judge all nations? So, yeah, just getting into some of those questions about God's character, too, and his right to judge are important. Any other thoughts, questions on that?
we are going to get to that. So it's a great question. I'm, I'm going I'm to lump that sort of together with judges because I think both of them point to Jesus in the same way, if that makes sense. So grateful for that question. But let's, let's, we'll wait just a second. If, you'll, if you will, we'll get to it. Any other, any other thoughts? Any other ideas? Okay. I'm sure glad I'm born again because <laughs> the final judgment's going to be the worst. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, all right. So, yeah. So, sadly, I think, you know, though Joshua is a picture of faithfulness, um, as we turn to Judges, you know, really that picture of faithfulness, it's, it's going to quickly turn. And in the book of Judges, we're going to see um, just how quickly things are going to go downhill once the people lose this, this faithful savior, this faithful leader that they had in Joshua. I mean, to put it bluntly, this is a story of a rapid descent into unfaithfulness. It's a story that's told in, in three parts. So in the first two chapters of Judges, we're going to see the roots of Israel's unfaithfulness. Then in chapters 3 through 16, which is the bulk of the book, where we're going to find the judges who kind of, uh, who are the, the namesake of the book, they're going to catalog really Israel's downward spiral into unfaithfulness. And then as we come to the last uh, few chapters in chapters 17 through 21, um, really what the author's going to be doing here is just showing us just how far and how bad things have gotten. You know, the, it's going to drive home the point that they are in a state of just complete and utter unfaithfulness. And so just thinking back again on those first two chapters, if we start to ask the question, you know, in some sense, how are things going to end up so bad? And we should come to the end of the book. We come back and go, well, how did things get this bad? That's what the authors of this book is really doing these first two chapters. He wants us to see and sort of set up the picture and give us a, a clear idea of, hey, things are going to go really bad as you read this book. And here's why. This is what chapters one and two kind of do. Uh, they set the stage by showing that that in the wake of Joshua's death, Israel is, is, is they're experiencing a crisis of leadership. And it, that's very clear. At the very beginning of the book, the question sort of asked, okay, Joshua's dead. Who, who's going to lead us now? And God commands the tribes themselves to kind of take up initiative. And he specifically commands Judah to take initiative. And for a while, that seems to kind of be working out okay. Judah goes up and... and, and tries to take some, some land and is successful, and then some of the other tribes try to follow suit, but they quickly are, are not able to, to take the land. So we not only have a crisis of leadership, but this crisis of leadership really quickly gives way to a kind of crisis of their ability to actually uh, take the land. So there's a crisis of conquest too. And then the, in these chapters, we're going to see that this, this crisis of leadership that creates this, this sort of crisis of conquest it's going to result in, in a crisis of worship. So because they're not able to drive out these people, well, as time goes by pretty quickly, they start to worship Canaanite gods. So they, they quickly turn from worshiping God to worshiping the God of these Canaanites who they have failed to drive out. The very thing that God warned them about, right? So that was another, another thing to answer that question. One of the reasons that God is so adamant throughout the book of, of Joshua that they wholly devote these things to destruction was so that there would be no defiling sort of influence on the people of Israel. They wouldn't, there wouldn't be a single person who, who comes up and says, you know, you, you should worship my God. You know, you're, you're, you know I'm, I'm still here. Or, or worse, somebody comes up and says, hey, you killed my dad. Now I'm going to have a fight with you. 
so there's there's this this picture of of that's exactly what's going on, right? They've they don't have a leader to sort of complete this process of conquest, and so they're unable to do so. And the result is they fall into idolatry almost immediately. Um, we read in in verse thirteen of chapter two a kind of clear summary in verses in verses thirteen through twenty three of what's going on in this book. So if you'll turn there quickly, I think this is helpful to read and helpful to understand this book. Does somebody want to read that for us? Chapters, or chapter 2, verse 13 through 23. Thank you. So, yeah, that is, that is in a nutshell this book. So the author's kind of helpfully told us exactly what happens in this book. And so with that in mind, you know, we have a clear picture of, of what's going on. And that's important, right? Because I think in some sense, um, this is a book that we can often look at and read stories of and, and look at stories that, have, that are interesting and exciting, but have largely been uh, almost put you know, in a category that I would describe as not helpful. Because a lot of the stories that you're going to see in this book, they're amazing stories. And they're amazing stories of God using people to deliver Israel. But a lot of the people that, that God is using in this book, they're not good people. And they're not good leaders. And, and we've kind of taken some of these stories and we've put some of these people up um, and on a pedestal in some sense and said, these are, these are good examples of, of heroes. And that's really not the case, as we're going to see throughout this book. And so this, this summary is really going to tell us what's going on here. And, and the main idea that, that we see here is that there is this, this cycle throughout this book of unfaithfulness. This cycle where we're going to see the people reject God. God's going to respond in retribution or in judgment. And then they're going to cry out to God in repentance. God's going to raise up uh, a judge who's going to rescue them, largely not by leading them necessarily back to faithfulness, but just by physically delivering them from the hand of, of whatever enemy that's oppressing them. 
So a lot of these judges are going to be people who are just really wise and strong. And in some sense, it's, it's I think, an attentional contrast to Joshua. You know, again, Joshua wasn't a good leader because he was wise and he was strong. He wasn't anything like Samson. Samson is, is very much an opposite picture of Joshua. Samson's successful because he's really strong. That's pretty much the picture that we're going to get of these judges throughout this book, is they're able to deliver the people out of the hand of these enemies through military might and strength. And yet, I think as we come to the end of the book, we're going to realize that's a problem. That's not a good thing. Like, yes, they're successful in some, ten- in some sense and at some times, but this is not what the people need. And, and, and I think this is, this is shown in the fact that as you go through chapters 3 through 16, Israel doesn't get better. They just get worse and worse and worse. You know, as the cycle plays out over and over again, yeah, there's some temporary deliverance and, and the people have some relief and they're willing to repent for a while. But as soon as the judge dies or, or in some cases just becomes unfaithful, they're just going to relapse right back into the idolatry. And usually they're going to be worse off than they were before. Right? So things are going to get bad. And it's important that we recognize that in spite of all this, it's going to, things are going to get depressing. But again, God's faithfulness is a key thing that we have to keep in mind as we read through this book. Otherwise, we're going to be, I think, prone to either idolize these people or, or we're going to be prone to just feel really, really depressed about what's happening. God is, is, is the one ultimately at work in all these things. And, and I think this summary helps us see that, that God is the one raising them up. God is the one punishing them. God is the one judging them. God is the one sort of driving this cycle in, in, a, in a positive sense, because he's the one who is faithfully executing both justice and mercy. But, of course, despite God's continual faithfulness, you know, things are going to get worse. And so, yes, God is faithful, but um, as these judges are raised up, the judges themselves, along with the people, are going to get worse and worse and worse. With the exception of, ironically, I think, Deborah, most of these people are not good leaders. You know, they're not people that we would look at and say, this is a model of leadership. Interestingly, the fact that Deborah is the sort of most worthwhile example in this book, I think, is also an indictment of, of the place that they're at. She's the only one who's called a prophet or a prophetess, you know, kind of hearkening back to Moses. The rest of them are just really strong guys who, who have a lot, a lot of flaws. I mean, Gideon is a mess of a leader. He's a guy who moves back and forth between timidity and just sheer brutality before finally just becoming downright idolatrous. So he's not a guy that we're to look to and go, this is a good leader. But he does deliver the people, nevertheless. And then his son Abimelech, he's really kind of an anti-judge. He's, he's one of the worst people in this book. He unites the, the tribes, but he does so by, by basically hatching a conspiracy to kill 70 of his brothers. And he's successful in this. And he's able to defeat, uh, defeat the, and unite the people because he's willing to murder his own brothers. And then we have Jephthah who, yes, he can defeat the Ammonites, but he makes this rash vow that probably leads to the death of his own daughter in a story that honestly makes him look nothing, no, no different than the Canaanites who are willing to sacrifice their own children to Molech. And then, of course, there's Samson, right? Like, everybody knows Samson. He's probably the most famous. I would probably, you know, probably more accurately say the most infamous in some sense of the judges. He's the last judge. But in a lot of ways, he really typifies this problem of of these 
this kind of unfaithfulness and, and, and um, just unfitness that these leaders kind of portray, right? He's, he's someone that we often in pop culture, Christian culture, he's, he's like almost like the Hercules of the Bible, right? That's sort of how we think of him. He's just this huge dude, with massive muscles, and he's really powerful. And, and no doubt, like we read of some absolutely devastating things. I mean, he kills like ridiculous amounts of Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey. And it's, it's, it's one of those stories that, you know, if you're a 13-year-old boy, you're like, yeah, that's awesome. Maybe, you know, just what it is. But, but reality is, again, Samson's not a, a role model. Like, he's not a good guy. You know, from the moment we start to read about him, it's really clear that, yes, God's Spirit is, is on him and using him to deliver the people, but Samson is always concerned with his own lust for food and women. I mean, that is constantly on his mind. He's so concerned with these things that he's continually disregarding his own commitment to God. You know, he's, he's supposed to have been, you know, his parents devoted him as a, as a Nazarite vow, so he's supposed to have all these commitments that he's not supposed to do, touch a dead body, and he finds a, a dead lion with honey in it. He's, oh, great, honey, and just takes it, right, and doesn't have any concern for his vow, and, and then lies to his own family and says, hey, I brought you guys some honey. Where did this come from? I don't know. And, and of course, you know, the famous story of Delilah, it's really a story of how his own desire to, to be with this woman and his previous wife, both of those stories just highlight his concern to ultimately not care about any, anything about his willingness to remain faithful to God. He's willing to, to marry uh, these Canaanite women, these Philistine women, just because they're beautiful, and he doesn't really care whether or not it's a bad idea or not. And, of course, where does this lead? Well, it leads him to being blind and captured by the Philistines, and, of course, we know the story of how he dies, you know, pulling those pillars down onto himself. So it, it leads to his ruin, right? And he's the last judge, and... and Again, apart from Deborah, these are not paragons of virtue. They're, they're a far cry from, from Joshua. Yeah, the Spirit of God is using these judges for His purposes. And yet, over and over again, I think we're meant to see that these, there's a problem here. Like, this isn't a good thing. This isn't, God is using flawed instruments to accomplish His purposes here to drive home a point. And what is that point? Well, before we get to it, I think we have to just understand how truly bad things are. And, and that's what the, the last five chapters are going to do, chapters 17 through 21. And there's no more judges, no more leaders. Even those flawed leaders, you know, God's not going to give them anymore. And, and honestly, like things go from bad to just stomach churning at this point. You know, the picture that's painted in these chapters is complete corruption at every level. So we talked about, you know, in Deuteronomy, how the laws all pertain to those three spheres of, of life, like religious, social, and moral. And these chapters are kind of intended to show us all three areas are, are in complete disarray in Israel. Things are, are totally, uh, they're just totally in free fall. So this starts with, with this story of an idolatrous Ephraimite named Micah, who likes to make kind of household gods, of, on his own, and he eventually makes one out of silver, and that's sort of his, his precious, you know, most favored God. And then he, he runs across a Levite who seems like a rather worthless guy who's just kind of wandering around, and he says, hey, uh, you're a Levite. How about I pay you some money, and you come hang out with me and just be my personal priest and just bless me and bless my uh, little idol that I made, 
And then God will be like, God will be happy with me and God will prosper me and I'll have plenty of money and plenty of stuff. And the Levite's like, yeah, sounds like a great deal. I get to live at your house, be your personal priest, bless you. Okay, sure. Sounds great. But things sort of quickly go downhill where uh, some guys from the tribe of Dan come in and they, they hear about this and they think, okay, wow, this guy's got a little silver idol and he's got his own little personal Levite. We need that. That should be ours. Like, why does one guy get, a, get all this? It should be ours. So they come in, they steal the, the idol, and then they, they convince the Levite, hey, you should come be our personal priest. Don't you want to be the priest of a tribe, not, not just some random dude? And he says, yeah, that sounds great. So they take him, and, and then they take over a city and kill all the people in the city, and they go, okay, this is our city now, and they set up the idol. And honestly, I keep telling the story, but it gets so uncomfortable and so disturbing once some people from the tribe of Benjamin get in that it's, it's hardly even possible for me to even repeat it. I mean, what, what happens as this story develops? There's, there's levels of violence and death and rape and sexual immorality that are just, like, it just makes, it would make all of us uncomfortable. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those things that I wouldn't want to watch a movie of this or read it if it weren't in the Bible. I mean, it, the, the point is things are bad. We are meant to come to the end of this chapter and think, Israel is in a terrible place. They have completely and utterly forsaken the Lord. You know, this is, these are, I, I think, without a doubt, probably the, some of, if not the darkest chapters in the Bible. Rather than driving the Canaanites out, Israel has become them. Israel has become Sodom and Gomorrah, those ancient Canaanite cities. And things are so bad that after this sort of series of terrible events that, that you can go back and read if you are up for it, that a, a civil war breaks out between the tribe of Benjamin because of these horrendous things that, that some of them do and all of the other tribes. You know, the other tribes are so disgusted by what, what, what these men from the tribe of Benjamin have done that they think, well, the only answer here is to just wipe Benjamin out. We just have to wipe the whole tribe out because they refuse to hand over these men. And Benjamin refuses to, to bow. And so Benjamin is almost completely wiped out. This whole tribe is almost completely wiped out. So things are bad. But there's a repeated refrain throughout these chapters, one that we're going to find at the very end of the book that I think helps us understand why things are so bad while also pointing us forward in hope that there is a solution, there's an answer to the problem. You know, otherwise we might be tempted to go, what, how do you go up from here? Like, where do you go from here? There's just no hope. But as we read in verse 21, 25, in those days, it's the very end of the book, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in these words, right, what's the problem? What is the author telling us is the problem? No one obeyed God. No one is obeying God. And, and what's the implied Reason. What's, what's the reason given? Why, why, are, why is everyone doing what is right in their own eyes? There's no one to lead them. Right. There's no king. There's no one to lead them. And even the judges, as uh, sort of unfaithful and, and, and flawed as they were, were incapable of leading the people to repentance. Right? So the, the answer, it, the implied answer is clear. Like, what do the people need? They need a king. Yeah, and not just any leader, right? They've had leaders before. They've had prophets. They've had priests. They've had judges. 
They've had a, a, a commander in Joshua. So they need something more than, than a prophet. They need something more than a priest. Something more than a, than a commander and a, and a savior in Joshua. They, they need something better than a judge, right? They need a king. But, but not any king, okay? Not, not just any king. And this is important as we move forward because they don't just need a king like the other kings. They don't, again, as it should be clear in Judges, they don't need a king who's really strong and really powerful and really intimidating and looks really, really impressive. They don't need a king who is cunning and wise and, and able to, to scare their enemies. That's not the kind of king they need. They need a faithful king. They need someone who loves God, someone who is a man after God's own heart. That's the kind of king they need. Remember, Joshua's his faithfulness as a leader had nothing to do with his strength or his own cunning. His, his, his faithfulness as a leader ultimately rested on his faithfulness to God and his willingness to lead people, the people to do the same. Joshua was a good leader because he loved the Lord, he trusted him, and he served him in his purposes, not his own. And so we've seen how the judges, in contrast, they, they use their power to deliver the people, but they're ultimately not faithful. But that's, that's what Israel needs, right? They don't just need a, a military king. They need a faithful king, a man who will love God. And that's, that's important because the book is setting the stage for us and telling us something. I think it's telling us something really clear. And it's not just telling us that the people need a king. I think it's telling us that, hey, a king's coming. God is going to resolve this problem, right? Again, God's faithfulness has been at the forefront the whole time. So if we know anything about God and we put two and two together, we say the people need a king. Okay, God's faithful. So if the people need a king, God's going to give them the king that they need. And I think that's, that's a key thing as we move forward because when we go into the book of Ruth, really that book is, is all about showing us how in spite of everything that's going on, God is at work behind the scenes to raise up this exact kind of man. So don't worry. As bad as things are, a king is coming. And not just David, right? In the immediate sense, that's the, that's the picture that we're to draw. A king's coming. And as we go into Ruth, we start to see, oh, it's David. But, but as we go on and as we go forward, I think what we're going to see is, wait a minute, no, it's, it's not David. Or it's not just David. Because again, what they need is a faithful king. Not a, a mostly faithful king but a perfectly faithful king. And yes, David's going to fulfill this hope in many ways, but ultimately he too is going to fail. He too is ultimately going to die. But through him, we're going to see that God is paving the way for David's true and better son. And it's through the promise of that true and better son that we're going to see the hope and the real answer to this problem. Not just a picture of the answer, but the real answer to this problem. A king is coming who will finally bring true and lasting rest to the people of God. One who will perfectly and faithfully and everlastingly save and lead God's people. One who will die for their sins, but who will also become an ever-living priest for them through the power of his resurrected and indestructible life. He will be a king who will lead this people in perfect obedience, sanctifying them in the truth, so that they become a perfectly faithful people who love and serve God without spot or blemish for all eternity. And when all is said and done, 
this king that is coming, he will deliver this people into an unshakable kingdom. We've seen just how shakable this kingdom is already. It's not even one book in, and things have been turned completely on their head. But the king that is coming, he will deliver us safely into his kingdom, as Paul says. So as we read these books, I just want us to step back and realize that, that the response that we should be having, that the way these books point us forward to Jesus, is they show us, they anticipate how Jesus is that king. Jesus is that one that they need, that one that we need to perfectly love and obey God and follow him. So as we, as we read and continue on throughout the rest of the Old Testament, I think we just need to be continually grateful that we have received such a kingdom and such a king. And as, as the author of Hebrews says, knowing this, let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Any thoughts, any questions on Judges, Joshua, before we close in prayer? We're all good? Okay. Let me pray for us. God, we are, um, we're grateful for your faithfulness. We're grateful that as we read a book like this and we, we just see, God, that uh, we wouldn't be any different. God, left to ourselves, we too would just quickly fall into idolatry and wickedness and all kinds of, of self-serving desires. God, we're, we're grateful that you have given us a king who leads us always in, in triumphal procession, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. God, we're grateful that we have this, this victory in Christ who has delivered us from this world and brought us safely into his kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, but one that we ultimately know will one day come down God, and when, when it does, God, we, are, we look forward to that day because we know we will get to finally enjoy that rest that you have promised. So, God, I pray that we would press on. I pray that we would be faithful. I pray that we would not let sin entangle us as we press on towards that kingdom and that you would encourage us by your spirit to trust you, to love you, and to obey you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.